What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the 101st episode of Never Made Varsity, the HBO limited series. My name is Colby. You can find me on Twitter at Colby Complains. What's up, everybody? My name is Dave Rivera, and you can find me on Twitter at DRivera1222. I almost plugged my old Twitter account, which is no bueno. <laughs> the burner. The burner, which I need to actually make a burner. <laughs> It's that time again, boys and girls. It's your boy Maverick. You can find me on social media at heartbreak underscore underscore kid. Hey everybody, I am recovering can from you my. Can fi- please just like start talking? <laughs> I never Maverick stop stops talking, talking when Maverick stopped talking. <laughs> but I didn't want to get yelled at for jumping the gun too much. I can uh, use some anticipation, friend. My apologies. Anyways. Before I was so rudely interrupted, I was saying, my name is Aaron, and you can find me on Twitter at Aaron P. Friedman. And everyone, I am happy to announce that we have a guest, uh, one of my friends. At pre- okay, so I knew him before we started this. Maverick, you did, and David did. Aaron, I don't believe so, right? No, this is the first time I've ever met Warren. Well, we have, thanks, spoiler alert, um, it's our friend Warren Fang, who is an analyst. Is that the right um, term? Yeah, that's right. I do um, analytics on the business side, so that's strategy and and pricing um, for the Brooklyn Nets. Awesome. So, we are going to do just like an itty-bitty interview, if that's okay with you. Oh, no. (laughs) Perfectly, perfectly okay. All right, so Warren, first question, uh, how do you know us, the ones that you do know? Yeah, so had the pleasure of meeting Maverick um, through, I believe it was summer of 2014 uh, when Ooh, I was yep. I served as an orientation leader uh, when I was a sophomore or going into my sophomore year at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, bonded really well, and I'll actually let Mav tell the story of of kind of how I was able to pay it forward in a way and, and allow him to sort of meet Luke May. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, group one represent, by the way. Always. I was in group one. Um, did meet Warren. Warren was my orientation leader. And for all of y'all that love my over-excessive ownership of Luke May as my student in my time as an orientation leader. Ownership, he says. <laughs> you can thank Warren a lot for that because Warren was the individual that sat me down and let me know that he had actually had nominated me for the position. So after that, really everything became history. And so Warren was the person that sort of saw uh, that potential in me to be in the same position that he was uh, when I was in his group. So, I just threw you to lob and you finished yeah. it. You, you dunked it. So. Absolutely. But like, and we just became good friends even through orientation, even after orientation, we, we had our mutual friends and everything else through the groups uh, just in school as a whole, um, plenty of basketball games, uh, both in Rams, everywhere else. So it's just been a good relationship over the last several years. For sure. Um, and then, Wait, Matt, right? Luke May was your student? <laughs> Dang right he was. <laughs> <laughs> I feel That's like you've never mentioned Bucks, that before. Uh, basketball player Luke May. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> so moving Sorry, on. go ahead, Warren. Uh, oh, no, all good. Um, I met Kobe, I believe it was probably the that same summer. I believe um, 
or was it the next summer when I became an RA? Um, and I think I met you through RA training. Uh, so I was an RA for three years actually at eHouse, and I believe you were at Hojo, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And so we met somewhere in between the the long week that was known as RA training, uh, and kind of kept in touch through then, uh, since then. And then Dave, I believe met, I met through either Mav or Kobe, or maybe Sashi, but uh, we're, we've been in a couple of fantasy football leagues together, and uh, probably played basketball together at some point. So, and then I'm uh, meeting Aaron obviously through the podcast. So nice to p meet you, and <laughs> that's a thing. <laughs> Good to meet you too, Warren. I'm pretty sure I met you through Vince because Vince was at E House, and then you went to Hojo, right? That's correct. Yeah, he, I, that's probably right. But it was through the yeah. RA circle. The, For sure. the similarly tight, but larger circle <laughs> than OL. <laughs> yeah, so like you said, uh, you work for the Nets. How about you uh, You tell us again what your position is and what you do there? Yeah, so kind of day-to-day. Um, obviously, it's, it's kind of funny that I'm doing uh, this interview today because it kind of is following the most hectic week, I would say, I had at work. Um, and that was because it was, you know, coordinating with schedule release, um, like a fun fact, not so fun for me, but last Sunday, so a week uh, from today, a week ago today, I had to go into the office actually just a couple hours before this time, and I stayed till about 8.30 um, getting ready, prepping for schedule release. So we got the official schedule about 24 hours in advance, and we just had to make sure you know, we're all set up with our, our pre-sale, which was on this past Monday or last Monday, and then on-sale, which was Tuesday. And those are two of our biggest days historically, uh, at least until, like, the week of the games in terms of um, sales. And so we just had to make sure all the pricing was on point, all the inventory was kind of managed well, and, yeah, just using a lot of data to drive those decisions um, on individual game price uh, basis, but also, you know, groups, uh, and then groups offers, mini plans offers, and of course the season ticket offers, which we had kind of fleshed out before free agency, and we were obviously geared and ready for the Kevin Durant and Kyrie situation, which ended up happening, which was pretty awesome. That was going to be kind of my question for you: is that did you see like a massive jump in things because of the whole Kyrie Kevin Durant thing? Because now, I mean, in my opinion, I feel like this isn't a like hot take, but I feel like Brooklyn's a spot now. It's not Madison Square Garden anymore. It's it's a Barclays Center now. Oh, so yeah. I mean, y'all got to be prepping for all that traffic. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of just like hype and uh, kind of just a pure basketball fan standpoint, yeah, like I mean, we're kind of seen as high of a demand as we've ever seen for Brooklyn Nets tickets. Um, it's a great time to be in the area to be involved, obviously. Um, but yeah, that first, that June 30th, when that Woj bomb hit, <laughs> it was, it was absolute madness. I think we received over a thousand phone calls or something, um, Dang, inbound man. <laughs> on the day and, you know, the sales floor was buzzing and all that. So it was a pretty, pretty crazy atmosphere and a, definitely a huge buzz, um, throughout the office that day. I'm Brooklyn, glad I had yeah. someone to talk to about ticket pricing and structuring and all that <laughs> stuff since we're we're going through some of that at my work right now oh, um, interesting. trying to figure out all that stuff for hpu yeah. but yeah i 
I know how that feels going, going through all of that, especially when you have like those big announcements coming. For sure, for sure. For sure. So uh, before the schedule release, or I guess going forward from then, um, what does your everyday look like? Sure. So kind of on a daily basis, I will go into work. Um, this is like a... <laughs> Kind of a. I told you I broke my bed right before this thing happened. Anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. So yeah, kind of a uh, every morning, you know, I kind of have my own routine. Um, This is kind of a humble brag, but in our net's office, we actually have a barista, which is really clutch if you like to drink coffee or anything. And so we also have kombucha on tap. But uh, yeah, every day we I go in, get my cup of joe. Um, the barista knows my order. It's kind of funny. As soon as I walk in, he's like, he's got got it on point. But yeah, then I get back to my desk. I usually check out, you know, how sales did over either over the weekend or over the past day or two, and kind of get a gauge of what games are selling well, which games are kind of moving slow. Uh, I'll get together with the rest of the analytics team and kind of discuss high level thoughts on, you know, are we are we pacing well for the Pacers game on a Friday or what have you just making sure like we're kind of on point with our forecasting and and uh just keeping track of of sort of the movement of inventory and and staying on top of that and making price changes as dynamically as possible um if you kind of think about how like the airline industry has been transformed with data and real-time analytics that's sort of what we're trying to apply with with basketball uh, and tickets but obviously that's a very complicated kind of there's a lot of factors that uh, come into play like you know day of the game time of the year uh opponent obviously is huge and with all the player movement it's just it's a ton to keep track of so we're just trying to be as robust and dynamic as possible on a daily basis but it's you know a few meetings here and there with um you know work really closely with the senior vice president of ticket ops uh, we go over you know minute details of like which seat is should be in what class and all that fun stuff and then probably the most fun is just you know a week of a game that's when we see huge spikes in sales so we just have to be really quick in terms of replenishing our inventory and 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 shifting price points so what do game days look like for you yeah they're quite hectic um they can be you know especially if it's like a lakers game which is our, always the you know one of the biggest, if not the biggest game of the season. It's just a ton of um, conversations that we're having. We have you know hourly updates that are automated on you know what kinds of uh, movement we're seeing. But in general, it's just it's just crazy because like once you see the finished product, you're like looking at a, a full crowd at the Barclays Center. Um, you know our team taking down LeBron. And it, that that makes me realize it's all Whoa. worth it. Um, <laughs> and we got them last year. This year, we'll see what happens. Just a little bit. Yeah. Got, got, got yeah. a little too much dip on your chip there. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's exciting stuff, especially when you see all the work that you put in come to fruition and you have a, a ton of butts and seats and everyone seems to be having a great time at the game. That's kind of what makes it all worth it. Butts and seats. I feel like I'm at work again. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So is there you just kind of some of these questions? Yeah. Do you, mind if I, do you mind if I ask oh, about ahead. just kind of like your general game day? Like, so on the actual game day, do you have any responsibilities? And like, what does that kind of look like? I mean, obviously you're kind of like seeing what's happening and seeing the butts and seats and everything. But sure. is there anything that's your responsibility on the actual game day? Yeah. So what we do is kind of 
we look at comp games, so games that are similar historically. We want to make sure that we're pacing at or above that in terms of seats sold as well as ATP, average ticket price. Um, but, yeah, we're just really trying to, you know, be as dynamic as possible, like I said, and just make sure we're at a position where, you know, we can announce a sellout if that's the goal for the game or, or we can, uh, we're always trying to, you know, maximize ticket revenue. So the day of the game is hugely critical. And I'm typically working all the way up until jump ball, you know, tip off if not a few, you know, an hour or so after that, um, just making sure we're selling through as much inventory as possible. Got it. Very nice. For sure. For sure. All right. So this first question is from Jeff Borden, uh, one of my friends on the um, Sterling Sporter Slack. So do you think that there's any area of basketball not being covered analytically as far as, like, in-game stats um, that you think will be in the future? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think really there are a couple of buckets, I would say, that are still not necessarily not being covered at all, but sort of untapped slash not fully understood. Um, One of them being, and hugely important, is uh, defense. You know, that's half of, if not more than half of, you know, a game. And, sure. and right now, there's just not a great way to measure with, you know, metrics, with hard numbers, how a team can efficiently defend. And on top of that, which individual players are, you know, the greatest defenders besides just using the eye test. Um, and the, the biggest issue, I think, is there's just a ton of noise in the data in terms of the, you know, whether it's player tracking data or just like if you think about, you know, purely opponent field goal percentage, um, like Kawhi Leonard's a good example where his defensive metrics aren't actually that great. Um, and that's a lot, oftentimes one because he's guarding the other team's best player. So on average, that opponent is shooting a better percentage, but he's also limiting that opponent from shooting that many field goals in the first place from from having that many attempts and so you have to look at it kind of in multiple angles and i don't think there's like a one-size-fits-all metric for defense um at, at the moment um and so i think that's one thing that you know i've been thinking about a lot going forward uh that could be hugely important in sort of determining the the direction of the league and i've actually considered writing an article about it just to kind of deep dive on what kind of metrics do help inform whether a defensive a player is good uh, defensively uh, and mm-hmm. which ones are just kind of um, more noisy, if you will. See, all this stuff is why I did not finish my stats major. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So, oh, yeah, just one more so, thing. Uh, the yeah, other thing I'll say that's not being 100% or it's being covered, but I would say there's still room for improvement. It's kind of rules and officiating, especially as it pertains to so the three-point line is obviously kind of a hot topic in the NBA. And I think, you know, I did a case competition maybe four or five years ago um, where pretty much the, the topic or, the, um, yeah, the, the question that we were asked to answer was, is a three-pointer being over or undervalued? And at the time, the Rockets were like the only t- team that was really shooting an exorbitant amount of threes. But, I mean, at the, and then I was like, Back then, I was like, no, almost no team is shooting enough threes based on, you know, the expected value of a three-pointer versus a two-pointer. But one thing that I think could potentially help, you know, 
flip the script in a way is a rule change that would make, you know, uh, maybe not something as extreme as like a four-point line, but at least making the three-point line in the corners extend to out of bounds such that there's not a really short corner three or just having a different kind of maybe the offensive three-second rule isn't a thing or just having more people get uh, have be able to, you know, be efficient in the paint and in the mid-range I think is a critical thing. So we might see a transform transformation in terms of that, uh, analytically speaking, looking at uh, whether that makes the game a little bit more balanced. Um, in college yeah i think they'll they'll play a big role i mean it's interesting it's going to be a learning curve for the college players just because they've been used to the college through their whole life but i think gradually you'll see that um you know net up to the nba level where they're going to be more nba ready or or just better prospects going into the league because they're more ready to shoot that longer three-pointer now this might be a little bit of a curveball but um so I work for a school that is a low to mid major a basketball school. So, I mean, just to be completely honest, we do not have the level of athlete as a Carolina or a Duke or a Kentucky or a UCLA. How do you think extending the three-point line or even like the expected value of a three-pointer, how does that affect the, the schools that don't have the elite talent that um, one of those power five schools, those elite schools have. Yeah. I mean, obviously when you're operating under a talent deficiency, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, you're kind of, um, you're kind of just keeping your head above the water. But I think one of the things that is a competitive advantage potentially is exploiting a three, the three pointer that's longer. You just have to get your players to be able, ready to, you know, shoot them as soon as they step on the court uh, after the summer uh, when they get in their workouts in. Um, because if you think about it, even if you downgrade from like a 33-point, you know, if you're a 33-point three-point shooter in the old three-point line and you, you, you're now a 30% shooter from three at, a, uh, at the new three-point line, you're still, analytically speaking, it's still better value if you're like a 40% shooter from the two-point line because you're getting more expected value out of that. I know that's kind of <laughs> nerdy, but if you think about it that way, there's still a ton of value from a longer, even an extended three-point line, in my opinion. So just being being re- ready to exploit that as soon as uh, you know the workouts preseason comes around, uh, the better position will be. But I'm a huge proponent. I think the co- in college, like they're not even close to you know touching the surface of how many threes a team ought to take interesting so let's move on to this question which i think is a interesting segue going from the three-point line to traditional uh, two-point shooters if we're looking like the long tradition of the nba uh dave also from the storm of spoilers i guess it's just a storm uh podcast slack ass um, he thinks that we're getting in back into the age of the big man. I guess he's thinking of like the classic Hakeem Olajuwon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What do you think of you know teams going? Do you think teams are going back to that style of maybe not necessarily back to the basket, but not necessarily being able to step back and shoot the three type of big man? 
Um, it's an interesting question as well. I would say yes and no. Um, I do think that the value of a traditional big man is is pretty much s- slim to none, um, unless you're like a Shaquille O'Neal or a transcendent big uh, like that. Otherwise, I think versatility is is money. Um, you think about the big men in the league today, the Joel Embiid's, the Nikola Jokic's, even Giannis. I. I, I classify him as a big. He's a ball handling big, but he's like six eleven with a seven three wingspan. He's he's a big man, you know. And so, yeah. I, I think even Ben Simmons, you can throw him in here. I, I think the league is actually going to be dominated by size. If if Ben Simmons could find like a just a reasonable jump shot, just a workable jump shot, he could be right. He could be a top <laughs> ten or fifteen player. Um, and I, I do think the future of the league is going to be dominated by these quote-unquote bigs who are extremely versatile, can defend, you know, multiple positions, but also can shoot the three ball, can pass, you know. But I, I do think the age of the traditional old-school big man is is all but over. Now, I have a question that's just from me, and I am not the only one who shares this opinion. Uh, I want to point that out. I'm not very, I am not unique in this thought, but I think that... Ben Simmons specifically I think he just needs to shoot jump shots and like shoot any shot outside of 15 feet I feel like will open up his game because as far as what I'm looking at if you are able to shoot at least like semi-reliably from outside of 15 feet that opens up your game so much more that if they have to respect a little bit of you being able to make that shot then that opens up lanes for you to be able to drive i think of like an andre roberson who is obviously like not the best offensive player but like he will pull up for three in a second and you know even if he only makes like 25 percent of his threes that is a shot that might go in and i've seen him be able to get to the basket because of that so what do you think of ben simmons just generally attempting his aversion from shooting outside of 10 15 feet yeah um i do think that's a that's a solid take uh i will say um thank you i'm getting on espn (laughs) (laughs) i will say like one of the biggest things for some shooters will just be the um factor of gravity um that just the threat of them shooting the ball um you know opens everything else like you were saying up on the court for not only them but their teammates um i do i will say if if it is a 25 percent three-point shooter you're 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 asking to shoot that's a bit of a stretch but we'll say you know 30 (laughs) percent if you're a 30 percent plus or minus two then that that i mean that's you should still take open threes just to make sure that you're keeping the defense honest and uh yeah I, i definitely agree with your take there um in terms of just at least having the defense respect you a little bit from outside the arc. I totally made up that 25%. <laughs> it just seemed low because I think average, like league average is 35%. So I was going to say, you know, 30% is, you know, below average, but still, if you're a 30% three-point shooter, I would say, you know, if you're open, you should still take those, those shots. Let's see what Andre... Okay, Andre Roberson, for his career... Wow, I was right. He is a 25% three-point. <laughs> uh, 
that's pretty good. I'm proud of that. That's pretty good. All right. Oh, yeah. Just to follow uh, up on that, more. one more thing. Um, mm-hmm. The advanced stats I kind of have my eyes on to, in terms of, like, bigger picture basketball trends, um, our usage rate, I think, is hugely important, uh, which is essentially how many possessions, uh, I want to say, per 100 possessions, uh, or it's just a percentage of possessions. It's just a percentage, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, that's that's pretty indicative of you know where the ball obviously is is being held by and, and I think you know you'll see maybe some of these more versatile big men the Embiid the Jokic's the Giannis's take over that rather than the Westbrooks you know Harden's still hugely efficient so his usage rate is going to be really high but uh, that's one key metric effective field goal percentage is just you know that one's just field goal percentage but it's um, it's just level set to give three pointers uh, 1.5 you know times lift, and so it's just kind of a, a very good metrics to. It's better than field goal percentage because it takes into account the three pointers, and then on and off efficiency ratings. Um, for those, you can you know mix and match lineup uh, kind of lineup uh, ma- uh, lineup lineups. So it can be one or two man lineups or three man groups, um, but anything over three is kind of shaky because there's also a lot of noise in that so in terms of on on and off efficiency ratings i think that one's a pretty good metric to uh, to kind of determine where the league is going that's interesting so when you when you talk about like more than three so if you look at something like the the warriors i guess not you can't really look at it as much anymore since kevin durant's gone but their their death lineup as as it came to be called uh, what do you think of people looking at those um, efficiency per 100 stats um, compared to some of their other lineups? Yeah. Do you think that holds as much weight as people are as people say it does, or do you think it's a little bit overblown? It, it is slightly overblown. I would say the biggest um, kind of issue with holding so um, using putting so much weight onto those four or five man plus lineups is because there's just not a huge sample size of minutes. Like a, a five-man lineup only plays X number of minutes, and it's usually fewer than 100 over the course of a season. And so that's just not much data to really solidly determine or dictate whether or not that's a strong lineup. Obviously, the eye test, I mean, with KD, Steph, Clay, Draymond, and uh, whomever, Andre Iguodala, that, that lineup's going to destroy anyone else. It's kind of just like... That's, that one's more like gut feeling can tell you that, and the eye test will confirm that. But but other lineups, I would just say be very wary if you see on Twitter or anywhere, like this five-man lineup has been plus 30 in, you know, 50 minutes. It's just such a small sample size that it could be a matter of them hitting five extra threes that the other team missed five other threes, and there's just a lot of noise in there, so... Now, on the other side, sorry, I'm getting, I'm really interested in this. On the other side of that, if you're looking at something like uh, a one-man on-and-off efficiency, do you think that is not, at least for it's, it's, yeah. what I think is not enough to look at what's happening on the court? What do you think? Sure. So it's not a perfect metric by any means. There aren't any one-size-fits-all, but I do think it is a good indicator it's better than like I would say box, just box score plus minus because it takes into a few other it controls for a few factors and it's also mm-hmm. um, like if you play with a 
a really good player all the time. Like Draymond used to always play with Steph, and not saying Draymond's not a great player, he is. But he got a lot of you know bonus points just from that. Uh, but I do think on and off efficiency ratings are are a pretty strong way to determine whether or not a player is a positive impact or a negative. All right, let's bring out company man uh, Warren Fang for a second um, and ask some questions about the Nets. <laughs> so first, from Savio, uh, I know you are not the general manager, believe it or not. We could not get the general manager of the <laughs> Nets was busy. the yeah, podcast. I think they had some other engagement. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, but uh, what do you think about um, not taking um, Wiggins to the Nets and sending D'Lo to the Timberwolves? Um, my friend Savio thinks that uh, Wiggins is good and his contract is not that bad at all. I actually disagree about uh, Andrew Wiggins being good. But I, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say the same thing if you didn't. <laughs> and, and Savio, as respectively as I can say, that, that contract is is atrocious it's horrendous. <laughs> it's it's uh hey warren it sounds like that's luis actually yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I apologize to you luis as well i just got to tell it like it is give the people what they want but you know his average base salary is 29.5 million a year that's so much money <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous i mean he's, he, just to give you a frame of reference that's the same amount of money uh well his base contract for this upcoming season is 27.5 million which is the same amount of money as Joel Embiid. It's more than his teammate, Carl Anthony Towns, um, more than guys like Devin Booker, Bradley Beal, Anthony Davis. I could go on and on. Nikola Jokic, Giannis. Um, we, we wouldn't have time in this pod to go through all the guys that, you know, Andrew Wiggins is getting paid more than that is egregious. But I, I would say he's a top four at best for Wiggins, worst contract. Um, maybe you can make an argument. John Wall is probably worse because of the injuries. And then term, depending on your preference for like Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul. But yeah, he's down there. And so I think it was it was a blessing in disguise, I'll say, that um, the Nets didn't make the move for him. I did hear about those rumors. And um, I think at, at the same time, um, I have heard like, you know, pretty much even the Zach Lowe's of the world not give up but be very very um kind of low on Wiggins I would say he is still only you know 23 years old um that's pretty much the only thing he has going for him uh, at this point um (laughs) and he offensively he's shown some glimpses of you know high potential but defensively he's a huge liability he doesn't seem like he cares that much and yeah his outside shot is is very very inconsistent so, I mean, I wouldn't have minded taking a shot at him, but not, not for, you know, D'Angelo Russell, who we actually got a, a first-round pick back from going to state for. Um, so that's kind of my take on Wiggins. Very good. All right. So let's do uh, one more question from Ariel Dean. Uh, my friend Ariel is a host of the oh I hope I get this right it is the NBA Asians podcast um, go check him out on um, Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts uh, why do you think uh, statistical based websites like 538 have the Nets at such a low win number for next year um, 
at least whenever he asked this question, which I believe was two weeks ago, they had their projected wins at 38, which I do believe is very low for the Nets. Um, he thinks it's because they view Karis LeVert as a negative value, which seems odd to Ariel and also seems odd to me. So what do you think about that? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think Go ahead and... Uh, just gas up the nets as much as you want. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I, I want to try to be as measured and fair as possible, but um, I do think there are a few factors that probably indicate that. I also did see uh, Kevin Pelton's ESPN projections had us as like the eight seed, the nets that is, uh, mm-hmm. going into the season, which is interesting. Um, I think there are a few things that play into why um, the analytical sites are, are putting us in that position. We're still a very young team. Uh, our, the average age of our roster is, is just 25. Kyrie Irving, people forget, is only 27. And um, only th- I think we only have three guys on the roster over 30. DeAndre Jordan's 32. I think Garrett Temple's 33. And Wilson Chandler's 31. And so we're very Wilson young Chandler team. Wilson Chandler is 31? Yeah. <laughs> he's been in the league for 15 years. Yeah, he's one of those guys. Like... <laughs> I think um, Greg Monroe's like they 29 or something. Them. That one's crazy too. But uh, <laughs> no, he's one of those players that it's like when you graduate college and they're still <laughs> uh, uh, they're still uh, or like the Perry Ellis when he was in Kansas type of deal uh, for, for seven sure. years. But no, uh, also I think the second factor is probably or is definitely one that uh, is we overperformed last season. So a lot of these models expect a regression to the mean, um, which is just kind of how math works um it, it, it is at times you know it is sort of a logical fallacy but that's just the way it is we we overperformed our vegas win projection last year by like seven wins i think they had us which is a lot yeah it's a ton they had us at 35 uh last year our over under and we won 42 games and made the playoffs as a six seed so there's that uh so i think that's kind of playing into this season's model um, and also, it just weights recent performances more heavily. Our team is so new that with guys that we're getting, like the Ky- Kyrie is a great example. He ended last season with the Celtics extremely poorly. He probably played his worst season in the last three years. But some of that is just recency bias that's, you know, baked into also the models is, is that, you know, his last season was not great in, in Boston. But if he can mimic his first season in Boston or even his last year in, in Cleveland, then that win projection is only going to go up. So I think that's a factor. And then the biggest one of all is KD is projected to miss um, the whole season. And and I'm not going to spill any insider info on the pod, although I would love to, but <laughs> I'm just saying he's not been ruled out yet. Come on, give us an exclusive. <laughs> I'm trying to get him on bleacher yeah. yeah. <laughs> He hasn't been ruled out yet, but uh, assuming he is, that, I mean, this this is also dictating the low wins. So I believe he here healthy 538 said we'd be closer to like a 50 win team which is sounds still a little low uh, given that if he comes back you know even 80 90 percent of himself we should be you know a strong eastern conference contender but yeah based based on those factors i think it's it's not a huge surprise that analytics sites have us uh, that low um and then kenny atkinson coach teams tend to overperform too so that's one of those things where it's really hard to measure a coach's impact on a team. And so usually, I guess, uh, these statistical-based sites don't really bother putting in, like, 
like Greg Popovich has to be worth like six wins or seven wins just totally yeah. making that number up but just uh, just you know it's very hard to it sounds right that number out. yeah exactly it's directionally accurate we'll say that the um Kevin Durant a healthy Kevin Durant adding 12 wins just for those who are not as familiar with like how numbers and samples and stuff works that is wild that is yeah it is crazy it's, it's yeah. a bunch of wins but I mean it tracks he's that good he's one of the best scorers we've ever seen right now I did have a brief follow up with that and that was a good uh, segue of sorts because you know again Katie's most likely will be out most of all year it maybe make the playoffs but I don't know if it's likely at this point but what it brings me back to is you look two years ago I think of a team like the Boston Celtics who had Gordon Hayward go down first game like first week of the season with that horrific leg injury and they struggled a little bit throughout and I mean it was one of their star players but they end up making the Eastern Conference Finals go to game seven of that and they get the somewhat breakout from Jason Tatum Terry Rozier Marcus Smart and that crowd and then this past season with Gordon Hayward returning to the fold and getting, you know, increasing his usage rate with him as well. Um, you know, a lot of those players that did step up two years prior also sort of regressed, if not underperformed in a lot of ways. Do you see anything like that potentially being an issue with the Nets once KD returns and then you're the, the younger players that are going to be stepping up in his place, uh, being not being able to produce as much naturally? Yeah, no, that's an interesting thought. Um, I do think from a numbers standpoint, like if you're just looking at box scores, sure, you know, Karis LeVert might not average 20-plus points like he was in the playoffs and earlier in the season. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie might not necessarily be as hot of a candidate for sixth man of the year because we have more depth and so on. But overall, I do think having great players like Kyrie and Kevin Durant when he gets healthy is just going to open everything else up. It's kind of like the gravity that, you know, a guy like Steph Curry has where, you know, players, these, these elite talents need to be double teamed in order to be uh, not even slow, not even stopped, but just slowed down. And so I just think it will open up a lot more um, lanes for Karis LeVert, a guy like Karis LeVert to drive, a guy like Joe, Joe Harris to can open threes. Um, so I do think it will have a positive, net positive effect on these guys. Uh, may not may not be on their raw scoring numbers, but at least in their efficiency numbers, you should see those go up across the board, especially as they get acclimated to their new team teammates. So I have one more question before we get into some preseason predictions. So I guess this is slightly preseason prediction. So if we look at the end of last year and you look at the Eastern Conference, we kind of had a log jam of five teams uh, towards the end of the year trying to make the playoffs. We had the Nets that locked down to six seed, the Magic got to seven, and the Pistons got to eight. Uh, the Hornets ended up getting the, uh, end up in ninth in the conference, and the Heat at 10th. They were all within three wins of each other. Do you think we're going to see something similar happening um, in the Eastern Conference this year? And just as by like comparison, the Western Conference, uh, the eight seed was the Clippers at 48 wins. Next closest was the Kings at 39. Yeah, so in general, I think um, I will say I, I would think about next season in terms of projections as like tiers, uh, like kind of how you should think about your fantasy football strategy. Uh, but at the top, in the Eastern Conference, you got, I think, 
you really can't make a huge argument unless you're Bill Simmons. Um, but the Sixers and the Bucks are at the very top, in my opinion. And then you have uh, the Celtics, us, and the Pacers, probably in that in that order, or maybe not in that order, but at least kind of in that tier. Um, and then after that, I think there's like a pretty large, not large, but there are a couple, a few teams that you can throw in there. Um, teams that made the playoffs last year, like the Magic and the Pistons, will be there. Um, the I'm kind of bullish on the Bulls. No, no pun intended. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll don't, see what no, happens no, with don't say no pun intended. <laughs> don't um, say that. <laughs> but, yeah, there'll be a few teams that are lurking kind of in that uh, tier three that will be very fascinating. I think the Hawks are, you know, one or two years from being one or two years away. Um, but uh, I think they're going to be interesting. Um, I'm probably missing a team here that um, somebody's so a fan of certain teams going to get mad at me. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think it's tiers. Yeah, the Knicks. <laughs> You're forgetting the Cavs on no, top. I will say they they don't make any sense on paper, but they have a, a few guys that I kind of like. Um, a couple Carolina guys, I think. Reggie Bullock. I believe Wayne Ellington, is. I think they signed him. Yeah. Wayne Ellington, and yeah. Then, um, I mean, they Julius got Julius Randle, too, who is. But, uh, at the very least, he's, a, he's an efficient four, but they have, like, yeah. five fours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Um so it's gonna it's an odd lineup, but we'll see what happens. Okay, so Colby had to go take care of business, um, but he wants us to move into. No, um, oh, you go, Mav. If you had something to say on the same subject, yeah, like different like games or yes. such. So basically, like being able to uh, project sort of certain things for the season. Um, I believe we were going over that a little bit before the game. Like, one game I was going to get you to analyze, at least on my end. Like, maybe I guess we could do, like, one from each of sure. our teams that has, like, a major storyline. Mine, of course, being November 11th. Uh, the Unicorn does make his ah. return to Madison Square Garden, uh, and we play the Knicks. I didn't know what you would think about that sort of a matchup. With our new, the new Mavs squad, as well as this very much odd couple of Knicks players. Sure. Um, no, that's super interesting. I actually might try to see what tickets are looking like for that game and try to see if I can snag one. But no, um, Porzingis' return to MSG. I think, you know, the whole Mavs, it's kind of crazy to think about it, but the entire sort of trajectory of the Mavs, in my mind, hinges on Porzingis' health and how he's how he looks when he comes back. Um, if he looks like Porzingis of old, and they're a Western Conference playoff you know potential contender if not then they're you know they're, they're at least a piece or two away um Doncic, who i wrote an article about uh my first and only blog post um <laughs> i love i loved him coming out of europe uh i think he's like at, at worst you know he's gonna be a top 10 player in the league um and i think the mavs are in good hands in terms of that but you can only do so much with you know, one elite guy. Uh, so I, I think, you know, if Porzingis pans out and looks good, that game's going to be crazy. Uh, he's, you know, he should be a lock for 2010. But uh, as a, for the season as a whole, I think they should be in the running for the eight seed. Okay. but And I, like I said, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of it does hinge on Porzingis' health because not only did he have the ACL tear, he got his hurt, mm-hmm. hand hurt in that 
the bar fight Eek was in in Latvia when he was uh, over there during the off season. He has had several issues come up in the off scene as well that has sort of derailed some of his momentum. They just released a, a picture the other day of him in the gym. Mm. Looks like Dolph Lundgren. I, and Ron, I think Ron I saw Ronke that. Yeah, he looks right. They they call them the the unit corn. <laughs> the unit corn. <laughs> well, yeah, the Mavs are going to be really so. interesting to see. Um, yeah, that'll, that'll be so fun. First season without Dirty Dirk. It's going to be interesting. Dirty Dirk. Oh, I'm so oh, Dolph. <laughs> hey, man, I had to go so through the sad. same thing with Tim Duncan. So, so yeah, I know how you feel. Oh, I, I, some tears oh, were yeah. shed in April. Yeah. Um, November 7th, I think, is the day that Kemba Walker returns to the Spectrum Center with the Celtics. So, yeah, Celtics for Charlotte. <laughs> there's, not, there's not too many positive things I can say going for you, Dave. Listen, um, man, just, like, you don't have to sugarcoat it. Like, I know. Just hit me with it. <laughs> I, the only bright spot I can say is it can't get much worse. <laughs> But uh, don't don't tempt us. <laughs> don't tempt us. I will say. I mean, I I'm, I haven't been keeping track of the market down there, but I will say like the Hornets probably ticket prices are are pretty affordable, even more affordable than they were. <laughs> yeah. that's so a, that's that's a win. Yeah, you it. can go see some stars for cheap when they come in. But uh, no, in all seriousness, I, I I strongly disliked what they did or how they handled the Kemba situation. Obviously. I mean, if they had not, they were. I think it was reported they offered him 160 million, which is blasphemous, um, <laughs> to use a word from our good friend Stephen A. Uh, it's like 30 million less than what the Celtics ended up paying him, and which was the the four year max. Um, but yeah, it was just if you weren't gonna p- offer him that that four year max, if not the super max, then you should have just traded him. And so, just poor management on all fronts. Yeah, that's, not, I just don't understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and nobody nobody is happy in Charlotte about what's happening. I mean, yeah, like I guess you the can, only you can thing be, I can say is Malik Monk is semi interesting. Miles Bridges is exciting when he gets up, and then I don't even know. Like, I'm not a huge PJ Washington guy. I think he's pretty refined. Like he has good post skills and stuff, but he's not a great fit for the modern NBA and just doesn't project to have tremendous upside. Like, I thought you guys should have taken Michael Porter Jr. last year's draft just to see what happens. Like, um, There's nothing to lose, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, no, I guess, I mean, the, the, the jerseys look really cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that honeycomb court looks hot. That court is fine. I um, do think, Yeah, though, I mean, listen, like, I was going to say that there's nothing really, I mean, other than the young players, um, there's nothing really exciting going on. We did sign the other Martin twin as well. We just said, you know what? The one that we drafted didn't seem that hot. Let's go ahead and draft his twin. <laughs> yeah, and then one more to add a little bit more salt to the wound. Uh, Jeremy Lamb, I, I don't understand letting him go. Like his contract, I think, with Pacers was like $15 million a year, which is totally reasonable. Like Solid second option scoring. I don't know, man. Is it a GM problem or is it an ownership problem? Like, is my boy Jordan just not hat cutting it? I mean, I, can, I don't. Have, I don't know if I can actually make a, a strong statement on that. That's I fair. Would, That's fair. I would assume it's since it's been going for a little while, it's more of an ownership issue. Uh, and then going back several years, that that non-trade for Kaminsky was just 
gives me headaches to think about. Yeah, man. <laughs> and I'm not even a Hornets fan. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It, All right, it's a I have one it. for you. <laughs> Go Let's look at the first uh, game for um, the Los Angeles LeBrons of the season. <laughs> we have the LeBrons versus the Clippers. What do you think of that matchup? Well, I'm guessing Paul George is still going to be out with his recovering from his shoulder injury. Um, Kawhi may may or may not be rested for, you know, <laughs> load management. We'll see. Um, but if everyone plays, I guess it should be an exciting matchup. Um, LeBron and Anthony Davis duo is going to be, obviously, you got to tune in every night. I do have a semi, I'll say it's a hot take. I think the best player on the Lakers is Anthony Davis. He's going to be Ooh, the best player wow. on the oh, next wow. season. You are and making no enemies on this podcast. I just think <laughs> Anthony Davis is in his prime. I mean, when healthy, he was averaging 27.5 points and 10 or 11 rebounds, call it. And then I'm, I'm actually semi-complimenting LeBron because I think playing guy, next to a guy like LeBron who draws so, many, so much attention and always seems to make the right pass – I just think he's going to flourish. So, I mean, it's more so just like I think they're going to rest LeBron, which they should, more games than not. And then those games, Anthony Davis is going to take over. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'll say he's the best player, but he'll put up the biggest numbers um, on that team in terms of a box score standpoint. That is the first. Okay, I'm gonna be completely honest. I tricked everyone into believing I knew about the NBA last playoffs, but I, I mean. Listen, I had two LeBron posters in my room growing up, so I will never get off of this bandwagon. Gotcha. But LeBron, even while hurt at the end of the year, still put up 28, 7, and 7. He put up 27, 7, and 7. So I still think. Never, still never 27, 7, and 27, 7, and 7 in the game. That's hard to say. But I think that, I mean, if LeBron is healthy, I can't imagine that he's going to. I mean, he is my superhero. <laughs> I can't imagine him ever getting worse than he's ever been. So I mean, he's also we'll 35. See. I'm just saying. And? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um, no, I still and think he'll be And what about it, Dot Ariana Grande? <laughs> and what about it? I also I have a question. If there's not anything after this that's supremely interesting, I'm just curious. Um, what do you, Warren, what do you think is contributing to the fact that so many people are dropping out of the Team USA um, stuff going on? Personally, I think it's because of this This next season is so wide open as far as, like, who can, like, I feel like Toronto has opened the door to, like, any, like the Warriors, not, I don't want to say the Warriors dynasty is over, but we would be lying if we weren't saying that the NBA is not as wide open as it's ever been again. Um, and I feel like that's contributing to a lot of people wanting to be fully healthy really working on their game so they can make a run at a championship. I feel like more teams are prepped to make, take a run at a championship this year than almost ever. Do you feel, do you agree or do you think there's something else contributing to people dropping out of team USA? No, I think, I think you're spot on. Um, it's definitely, I mean, the championships there for the taking, you can make a case for four or five teams, you know, two from the East that I mentioned, the Sixers, the Bucks, obviously the Lakers, Clippers, um, I'll, I'll still put the Warriors up there just because they have Steph Curry and Draymond. Um, but and yeah, I think Clay will be back by then. Yeah, I mean Clay's a warrior, pun intended. 
Um, we got two NBA players. <laughs> no, but like, yeah, I just think it is more wide open, like you said, than it has been in maybe almost ten years. I would say, like dating back to when the Spurs are kind of taking over. Um, right. And then the health factor is extremely important. Um, I think players are recognizing like they have to take care of their body more than ever, both from like a business standpoint, like that's their money maker, but also like yeah, if you want to you want to win the championship all your best players have to essentially be healthy um and so that's they're just taking extra precautions you saw what happened to boogie which was super unfortunate um but i mean and that wasn't with team usa but it's, it was also in like this live scrimmage which you know team usa they're going to be playing their hearts out for the country so um similar stuff could potentially happen and also that obviously the paul george incident from several years back is on yeah. people's minds still so i think you're you're right on with that and even look at i mean look at on the other side of that look at what Kawhi did when he was rested he never played any back-to-backs last season if i'm not mistaken and he looked like a nope i mean he looked like a machine in <laughs> in the playoffs yeah um, I mean, he, he missed what 20 games he sat out 20 games in the regular season 22 maybe and then in the playoffs he got hurt but <laughs> he is still playing through that and still playing at an elite level um, maybe I mean Kawhi is also one of the elite kind of <laughs> guys that seem to never be able to get hurt or are able to play through hurt uh, injuries. But um, but yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Any other basketball stuff before we move on to something different? I think we grilled no, him I'm enough. Good. I think we grilled him enough. Yeah. 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 No, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Warrant. That was great. That's probably the most in-depth, like at least stats-wise, on basketball conversation we've had in the podcast. So yeah, thank you for that, bud. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. All right, let's talk uh, fantasy football. So there is a fantasy football uh, never made varsity group that has been filled. I am not doing it because I am taking an indefinite break from fantasy football. Um, and my father is playing in my stead, and I will help him from afar. Is but, this a Coach K indefinite leave or an indefinite leave, indefinite leave? This is an indefinite leave, indefinite leave. This is not a, a one-season Coach K indefinite leave. But, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm not feeling fancy football. I mean, I was never feeling fancy football. I did it because my friends were doing it. So you're easily peer pressured is what you're saying. And now I don't have friends, so I don't feel pressured to do it anymore. Okay. So So, yeah, who are y'all looking at um in terms of like the the top of the board in fantasy football, Aaron? I have not started studying fantasy football yet. I just chose my keeper for both of my big leagues. One of them, I'm keeping Nick Chubb in the 10th round. I'm really big on him this year. I'm really big on every Brown this year. I'm really hey, big Nick on the Chubb Browns every year. Tenth round. Well, last year he was a 10th round pick. Okay. I was He's about to say, if he drops to the 10th round this year, you're definitely getting no, no, a no, steal. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, so the way that those leagues work is like you keep a guy in the round that you picked him the year before, but you can only keep someone once. Or, like, you can't keep them consecutive years. So, 
someone drafted Chubb in the 10th round last year and then dropped him, and I picked him up the week before he got the starting job. And I think that for he's going to be a running back one from workload alone for the first half of the season until Kareem Hunt is back. And who knows how Kareem Hunt's going to be used after then, but Chubb is so talented that even that first half of the season would make him worthwhile. Because even if he's not good for you in the playoffs, you got to win games to get to the playoffs. Uh, Maverick. I, I think a lot of the draft boards, it appears that Saquon Barkley has been the consensus number one for a lot of, of, man, of GMs. And I think there's usually a lot of questions around that. You look at it, the Giants team who is just lacking in a lot of ways. Um, and basically their rationale is that there's really not many wide receiver targets. Um, I mean, can anyone name one of their wide receiver targets? I think Sterling, Sterling Shepard. Shepard's the only one I know. Or Evan Ingram at tight end, but not necessarily like wide receiver yeah. targets. And so like since there might not be just a whole lot of in the air option is that they might take it more to the ground and just let basically be a, Saquon be a, just a volume runner. Um, so eventually he is just going to score the points just because they're going to give him the ball so much. David. I promise I'm not being biased. Uh, Christian McCaffrey. He, especially in PPR leagues, that dude, he's going to eat. I mean, he is RB1. There's no competition for it. Um, I know that there are rumors about there being uh, like a power back for goal line situations. I don't believe that for one second. <laughs> um, I don't know where it started, but I just don't believe it. Um, Christian McCaffrey is there to take a load off from Cam Newton. Like, that is his purpose. And so when you factor in that he's gotten bigger and stronger, he's proven he can run between the tackles, he's a viable goal line threat, he's quick, he can catch almost as – actually, I would argue he can catch better than any receiver. Um, he has really good hands, um, and he's a really reliable checkdown option. He's going to rack up points off of receptions alone. Those big games that he breaks off for 100 yards, I mean, he could viably – have a like 700 700 season if not a 1000 1000 season i just i really that's ambitious it is ambitious but i'm just saying if there's anyone that's going to do it i feel like it's going to be christian mccaffrey and with cam having a healthy shoulder now um i feel like there's going to be a lot of good things happening whether the panthers are successful or not i'm not quite sure yet but i do think that christian mccaffrey is basically a rb1 and a wide receiver one mixed into one person uh, Warren, first, do you have a football team that you follow? Um, I kind of have a couple, but obviously the Panthers. Uh, they're kind of like my adopted child. This is an analogy <laughs> I like to give. But then the Packers, because I, I lived in Wisconsin, or I, I lived for a few years there growing up. They're kind of my firstborn. But I love them both equally, I promise. Um, but, yeah, Packers and Panthers are my team. Um, and I have dug a little bit in terms of who – if I do have the first overall pick, I'll I'll choose um, Saquon and McCaffrey are kind of obvious sort of no-brainers. But I would like to nominate in the conversation Alvin Kamara, oh, yeah. who I think you know is just super dynamic, catches so many balls that he has a high floor. 
Now, I know Latavius Murray, the reports out in the Saints kind of training camp, is that he's going to be the Mark Ingram of the Saints this year. So, um, I But he's not Mark Ingram, yeah, I don't think. No, yeah, he's not. Yeah, yeah. Latavius Murray. <laughs> no, like, I don't. honestly, like. I don't know. I, I mean, I. Listen, I have a heavy bias against the Saints. But I feel like. Latavius Murray is a good analog to Mark Ingram. I don't think that I don't think that Latavius Murray can't do anything that an older Mark Ingram can do. No, yeah. I mean that's a good point. I was listening to another I think it was Simmons and Matthew Berry podcast where they cited Latavius Murray is like one of three players who has scored six touchdowns each of the last three seasons. So he's really good at goal line scoring. I think the other two were like Todd Gurley and maybe Melvin Gordon but yeah like he's gonna steal a lot he's gonna vulture some touchdowns which is to be expected with almost any elite running back but I mean he Kamara is one of the only you know two or three guys who can break off 60 yard run for a touchdown or catch a pass for 40 50 yards and and take it to the house so I like his elite playmaking abilities he's definitely one to watch even with the potential of Latavius Murray Vulturing those goal line carries off of him. Kamara's still a top five, top ten running back. He's demonstrated that last year when Ingram had that same role, and both of them were top 15 in fantasy, if I remember correctly. Hmm. You know, right. Running back is, is, is really like the way to go because the value, I would say, after the third round drops pretty significantly. I mean, we're all competing against each other, but it's really not rocket science for that. So it's really important just to break up on those. Now, given certain circumstances, I would say, especially in a 10-team league like we're going to have, it might even be best, though, to start with go, like with an elite wide receiver, even if you have the, uh, an early first-round pick. Do y'all have like who y'all would go with if you were really sort of forced in a way, or if you had to take a wide receiver in the first round, who is your, your go-to? Warren, uh, how about you go first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I'm a little bit biased, but I think Devontae Adams has a really good case as as wide receiver one. I do think Hopkins is slightly more talented, um, but in terms of quarterbacks, I just think Rodgers, mm-hmm. I, I want to say Rodgers is better than him uh, as a passer, uh, as Deshaun Watson. So I, I lean Devontae Adams, but again, I, I'm admittedly slightly biased. David, it's uh, it's tough because like I, I don't know. I feel like between Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, and Devonte Adams, it's pretty close. No, no disrespect, no disrespect to Odell Beckham, promise. What but about Antonio Brown? Feeling the disrespect. I, I, I don't think Antonio Brown is worth a first round pick, but that's because I don't believe in Derek Carr at all. Um, that's personal preference. I don't like. It's not an Antonio Brown problem. It's a Derek Carr problem. Um, listen, I, I personally would take DeAndre Hopkins just because I've had him before, and even with crappy quarterbacks, he's been really reliable and he's gotten me uh, a really good amount of points. Michael Thomas is also really good, but I feel like the right after a big contract. Like, I feel like players are subject to disappointing seasons, and I feel like he might fall victim to that because he got that money money. Um, 
And then, yeah, Devontae Adams. But pers- if I had a choice between the three, I would take Devontae Adams. Although Beckham Jr. is going to be sharing uh, with Jarvis Landry, who we know is a like possession receiver and is very good at stealing <laughs> points from other receivers. Because <laughs> I had him when he was on the Dolphins. Or I had whoever was right across from him when he was on the Dolphins, I also had him. Always be Jarvis. Uh, I would always be Jarvis Landry. I'm trying to remember who that was. Kenny Stills? Was it Kenny Stills? What in Miami? I don't know. Yeah, Kenny Stills. Did they ever what? Have Michael Floyd? I feel like he might have been it. I don't remember. Either way, I would go DeAndre Hopkins. Now, would you take your wide receiver one or like a Le'Veon Bell, a Melvin Gordon, one of these more? Uh, more question marks given their situations with like Melvin's holdout, Zeke's holdout, um, Le'Veon Bell is just question mark take... with being a, with a Jets team over your wide receiver one, and because especially this is more for your person like you're basically like your five to eight kind of range that's going to have to make these decisions. I wouldn't take. I would not take Zeke in the first round. I think he has a very he has a potential to do the Le'Veon where he holds out for the whole season. Um, and I don't, I don't mess with that. Um, with Melvin Gordon, also looks like he's potentially holding out for a decent amount of time. So, but I would take Le'Veon. I still think that Le'Veon can put up numbers. If I was forced to choose between players, I would take Le'Veon. You must not have been a Le'Veon owner last year. I was not. <laughs> no, I avoided that like I got, a plague. They, they I picked got him like, oh, I'm going to get him back in four weeks, and then <laughs> didn't use nope. him at all, and it absolutely destroyed their team. My team game was Nobel Prize winner. (laughs) (laughs) Nobel Prize winner. That's funny. (laughs) That's funny. All right. One last question and let's get out of here. How far does Zeke have to fall to for you to want to take him, David? I would take him like third, fourth round if he was still there. If I filled out my my running I I tend to draft running backs first cuz I feel like that's the where you get a lot of the bulkier points and then you can get still get a or, depends if there's still, if there's an elite wide receiver and an elite running back I'll go those two if I need another running back by like round 3 4 I'll take the chance on Zeke uh Warren um I would go as early as end of first early second just cuz I think it might be worth the risk you can make an argument Ezekiel Elliott's the best running back overall if he didn't have this whole holdout situation. Um, he gets so many touches out the backcourt or the backfield. Too much passing. <laughs> uh, and then he also has shown a propensity to catch passes, which, again, uh, elevates his floor a bit. So, yeah, I would, I mean, I would, I would definitely hesitate, but if he's there early second round, I'd snag him um, and potentially even late first if I can't get any of those. I guess top four or five running backs. Um, I'll I'll take him there. Maverick. Yeah, I mean it really does depend. I I'm, I'm sort of agreed as well with Zeke. I would probably take him maybe second round, my second round pick, because I still think he's wor- he's worth the risk if he's on the field. Um, but it's sort of thing. If he goes, I'm not going to be that worried about it. I'm going to focus on other things because uh, I would even take even something like even a tight end one before I, I would take it before in, in certain circumstances, depending on where I'm drafting. Like if I'm going to be in the back end, I might just stack basically 
essentially a wide receiver one and even tight end and just bulk up on tight ends. It might struggle with running back, um, but it just depends on the position that I'll be in. Aaron. I think that I'm in a similar boat as Warren. I don't think I would take him in the first, but if I got a good running back that I trusted in the first round, I would not have many qualms about taking him in the second. I would not take him to be my RB1, even though I don't think his holdout is going to last that long. It's not worth the risk because receivers are much more dime a dozen than running backs are. And indeed, like the values drop steeply. Once you get into about the third or fourth round, when it comes to running backs, you, you, it's yeah. important. To I mean, get you've only got so many. You've only got so many starting running backs, but you can get a flyer receiver every single week. Basically, like you can get a Zeke in the second or third round, and their production, even with these holdout issues, is still going to be a greater value, I would say, than the next tier of running backs that can play sixteen weeks. I think we need to get out of here. Yeah, we got a long time today. (laughs) We're about an hour and ten. Yeah, but it's been fun. Warren, thank you so much for joining us. This has been it's been a good one. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun chatting up with you guys, and hopefully, maybe after the craziness of the season, NBA season is over, uh, we can do another one. For sure. So. Where can the people find you? Where can people find uh, the blog post you wrote? Go ahead and promote as much stuff, season tickets, whatever. I don't care. Go ahead and promote what you need to promote. Um, so, yeah, my Twitter is – let me double check. I think it's – yeah, it's just at Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N-J, Fang, F-E-N-G. Um, I think my link, the link to the, my blog post that I, I wrote a couple summers ago is there too which uh, kind of indirectly helped me actually get my position here. So I'd love to talk to anybody uh, off the record on that. Um, but, yeah, if you need <laughs> net season tickets, just, just you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or whatever and just send me a DM, and I'll, I'll put you in touch to, to the right folks. All right. Thank you for coming. And... If you want to find us and all of our endeavors, you can do that at tinyurl.com slash nevermadevarsity. Leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. Anything you liked or didn't like to share, let us know via Twitter at nevermadepod. Thank you to Jake Cochran for the theme music. And, uh, wow, why am I blinking on our other person that we pull music from anyway? David Cutter. David Cutter, thank you for David Cutter for the outro music. I thought you were playing um, on. We'll see, see you next all. week. <laughs> <laughs> that too. We'll see you uh, in the next week. Adios. Uh, yes.